Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another episode of The Three Apostates. Uh, We are coming at you, of course, on Google, iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, with um, video here on YouTube. So this week, I'm joined by my good friends, Jonathan Streeter, who is a former Mormon or foreman, and um, Lloyd Evans, who is, of course, a former Jehovah's Witness. And they're sort of my opposite numbers in the, um, you know, critical community of people who like to talk about their former uh, groups and what, you know, and, uh, and educate and discuss and talk about why we're former members, because we all have good reasons for being so. So uh, this week, um, first off, hi, guys. Welcome Hello. back to the podcast. Hey, hi, it's uh, great to be back. All right, cool. It's been too long. Yes, it actually has. We need to do this more often. Um, Okay, now this week, um, you know, we've discussed a few things in some of our earlier episodes, and this time we're going to talk about reasons why people stay in these destructive cult groups. Um, Because, you know, it's, it's difficult for some people to understand why do people join, what's the mindset, and then why do they stay in these groups? Because it's so obvious to people when we discuss these groups, why they're destructive. But we're, of course, highlighting, you know, some of the bad things that are going on. But Uh, What we don't talk about are some of the reasons why we would stay in these groups or reasons that the groups give us to stay because there are threats, there are various means of coercion, Uh, you know, and and I I love that word, coercion. Uh, Anyway, so Jonathan actually is the one who came up with this idea for this week, and I thought it was a great one to talk about. So I'm going to let him sort of lead the conversation and start on this. Jonathan, take it away. All right. Thanks, Chris. Um, So the idea for this came from Facebook when, you know, you're scrolling through and you see, you know, these outrageous news articles from around the world that will show up in your feed. And one of them that I came across uh, with was a police officer that had been called to a flat in London and it turned out to be a domestic violence situation where there was uh, a a woman who was essentially trapped in an abusive situation. And when the officer arrived on scene, he noticed something about the flat and that there was, it was a basement flat. There was only one way in or out and it was a a narrow stairway. And there was something on the stairs that he thought was so outrageous. He took a picture of it and it made the news because of that. And I wanna share that picture with you. So let's see if we can get this working here. And let's share it. All right, so this is the picture that he took of the stairway. And I want, I want to describe it to you so you can kind of appreciate why perhaps people thought it was amazing. And what you can see is that there are probably about, uh, I don't know, 16, 12 to 16 stairs. And on each step, there is pointed down, stuck into the wood of the stair, a knife on either side. Right, yeah, you and got two knives per step. Yeah, exactly. And, and on some of them, like on the first step, you can see that there's actually a, a bullet in a shell casing on the step. Oh, oh my God. Is that what that is? That, that's what that is. It's a bullet with a shell casing. And, and the officer said there were a few other bullets. I'll zoom in a little bit there so you can see. 
and looks like a perfectly normal stairwell to me. I don't know what the buzz is about. <laughs> well, wh where do you live now? Where are you? You're in Croatia. Is that how they do it in Croatia? Yeah, that's how everyone has those stairs here in Croatia. <laughs> but uh, psychologically, yeah. I, I want you to understand that this is a psychological message to the woman. When the man would leave the flat, she would have the option of leaving. But this reminded her at every step that she would have to take in order to leave the threat of violence was reinforced because she had to pass through this gauntlet of damaging psychological um, symbolism of these knives stuck in this stairwell. And that got me thinking that, um, you know, when people encounter abused or battered women, frequently they'll say, well, why did you stay? You had opportunities to leave. And that's when they don't understand the type of psychological prison that people are, are kept in because of the words, the messaging that is given by their abusers. And it usually will take, to, you know, there's kind of a positive and a negative side. There will be the threats, the negative messaging of what's going to happen to you if you leave. But then there'll also be the positive messaging of look at these positive things that you get for staying. And the implicit flip side of that is if you leave, you will lose these positive things. And so... What? What are those? What are those notes? He's there's also like little. They look yeah. Like there, there are cards there. The three by five message didn't describe what those were, so I don't really know. Um, but I but I thought the the power of this type of symbolism, I could very easily take each of these steps and and include some of the negative messaging that we get in Mormonism that are the implicit threats of what will happen to you if you leave. And, and so I created another image, which is basically at each one of those steps, in addition to the knives on each side of the image, you have some of the things that we have been told by our church leaders will happen to us if we leave the group. And so, you know, the first... This is just blowing me away right now because this is, this is literally a physical universe representation of the mind control. Exactly, and, and the beauty of the symbolism of this is the only stairway that this woman could take to get out is that for each of us in our journey out of our controlling group, we had to pass a gauntlet of negative messages and positive messages that by implicit threats because of losing them when we leave. We had to pass through this in order to escape. And so anyone in any group that wants to get out of an abusive environment has to understand that these threats are part of an abusive relationship. And hopefully with that understanding, they can see that the threats lose their power to some extent. Wow. So, um, so I, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go over what the Mormon threats were and then see if you guys have any parallels in the Jehovah's Witnesses, in Scientology, about the types of threats that you have. So I want to focus on the negative messaging first, and then we'll take a look at the positive messaging. Yeah. So uh, some of the ones, and I, I sent a message out to the ex-Mormon community saying, what are some of the threats that were important to you when you left? And a lot of them are encapsulated here. So the first one um, is that your soul is condemned to eternal damnation. Mm -hmm. And in Mormonism, that, you know, Joseph Smith originally set it up a little differently. He said, there's no real hell. There's three levels of heaven. And so everybody's, you know, Hitler's going to be in a level of heaven. Um, oh, right. We talked about that before. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but 
we've had, you can find quotes from leaders that say, well, really, if you're in the highest level of the highest heaven, then that's heaven and everything else is damnation. And so that is part of the threat. So if you leave, you're going to be consigned to a level of glory that is less than the full level of glory, which is a form of damnation. Now, Lloyd, I imagine that there's something very similar in Jehovah's Witnesses. I was going to say, um, not necessarily because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that the soul is eternal. Um, They obviously uh, do believe that there's a possibility of eternal destruction, which I always think that the the word etern the word eternal is kind of redundant next to the word destruction. When you're destroyed, you're destroyed. So they think that the worst that could happen to you is that you die without the possibility of a resurrection. So I guess the equivalent for witnesses would be um you are destroyed without hope of resurrection. So it's basically annihilation. Your your existence yeah. is eternal based- annihilation. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, what about what about Scientology, Chris? Well, their their statement and the big 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 threat of of leaving Scientology or losing access to Scientology is you lose your eternity. That's how it's phrased. You don't want to lose your eternity, and and what it's a sort of a negative thing uh, or a reverse sort of thing because it's it's a it's not what you're gaining, it's what you're losing, right? In other words, you're giving up this potential to live in a causative, proactive, uh, you know, self-assertive, self-determined existence for the rest of eternity. You're giving that up, you're losing that. And what that means, of course, is that you are damned in a way. It's not damnation in that God or a, or a, a, you know, a, a higher power is is cursing you it is that the circumstances of life in the in the physical universe is this endless cycle of life after death after life after death that you're stuck in and it's a trap and you can't get out of it and it's kind of like a a twilight zone existence where you just you know you're kind of dimly aware of this hellacious existence that you have but you can't ever get out of it and that's what you doom yourself to if you deny or leave, or are denied Scientology. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's interesting how the same concept of um, either eliminating or damaging your eternal existence after that is reframed according to the theological construct of each different one, where we understand exactly. that the implications of the type of threat is essentially the same. Um, it just has a different flavor based on each one. That's right. That's, exa- that's exactly right. And I, I find it interesting too. But it feeds right into the entire point and narrative of almost every religion, uh, which has to do with supernatural existence into eternity, uh, you know, the soul being an, uh, an, an ageless, endless, you know, doesn't die sort of thing which I find so interesting to contrast that with what Lloyd was just saying about how you could stop existing and then there's just no existence. Did I, did I get that yeah, right? That's right. Yeah, witnesses kind of pride themselves on being different from mainstream Christianity um, in applying a, a word, I think it's a, a scripture from Ezekiel that says the soul that is sinning it itself will die. And they take that as a proof text to mean that there's no such thing as an immortal soul, which is what mainstream Christianity teaches. 
So the worst case scenario for a witness is that you are, they interpret the lake of fire that the, the, the devil gets thrown into in Revelation as, be, as signifying eternal destruction. So they say, well, that's, that's uh, going to happen. You're not going to literally be thrown into a lake of fire, but your, your annihilation will be total uh, when you die, whether that's at Armageddon or because you've died before Armageddon as a sinner. And, and I okay. think all of these things tap into a very primal instinct that everyone as humans have, which is a desire to live. And so death, right. whether it's annihilation or Mormons frame it as spiritual death when you're cast out of the presence of God, or a death in terms of staying trapped in an endless cycle of life that has no real significance or no real meaning in the way that you frame it for Scientology, just it draws on that raw, um, you know, primal motive of, of being alive. And I think all religion, as you said, a lot of um, the messaging that you get from all of these religions, but particularly in totalitarian religions, really uses that primal drive as a leverage to get people to stay. I think if humans weren't afraid of dying, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I think you're I think. absolutely right. I, I think that's very true. Uh, we have a... Uh, <laughs> horrible, horrible. I, I don't know about anybody else. I don't want to die. <laughs> you know? I got, I got no, I'm in no hurry to have mm -hmm. that happen, you know, or find mm -hmm. out what happens when you die. Right. I, so I, I totally get the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the certainty that, that, that religion offers people that they're going to carry on. I, I, you know, people say, why do people believe? Why is it so compelling? Do you not understand the, the, mm. the appeal of eternal life? Yeah. You know? There's something very primal, I think, in humans that needs that kind of certainty. It's the same kind of primal urge that you get when you're kind of afraid of the dark or you hear lightning. There's just something that happens in us where we don't want to end. or We, we want to continue living um, when an organization or, or a religious group comes along and says, we've got the answers to that. Uh, all you need to do is study our textbooks and blah, blah, blah. You'll have everything that you need to live forever, basically, in whatever form that is, whether that's in the Scientology context or in the Mormon context or whatever. And you can see how those impulses carry an evolutionary advantage uh, because they can be protective, they can help um, promote your, you know, your genetic material, you know, fear of, of death and everything that, you know, you're going to act on that and try to live. And I think anytime you look at any of the subversive ways that um, these controlling groups control people, it's usually leveraging or um, exploiting those natural impulses and subverting them to, to make you subservient to them. And we, we're going to see that a few um, times, I think, as we have these conversations. So let's go to the next step. Um, and let's see here, I'm going to bring that window up again. All right, the next step is uh, you're going to lose the closeness with your remaining family. And in Mormonism, you know, we've evolved on the concept of shunning. Um, early on, if you left the church, your life might be in danger. And certainly your family would be separated from you, would not want anything to do with you because they were instructed not to associate with apostates. Over the decades since the church started, over the century, then that messaging has softened up. 
Um, and so now we even have a, apostle level leaders saying that if they had children leaving the church, they would not cut them out of their lives. They would continue to interact with them. But it goes without saying, I think many of us in Mormonism will say when you leave the church there, even though your family members will still interact with you, there's still a, a distance there. And that distance may be subconscious, but a lot of it is they don't want to have a full connection with you or communication with you because you have ideas and thought processes that are seen as infectious and maybe damaging to their own faith and testimony. They have an inner sadness because they, as believing members, still accept the idea that your choices are basically banishing you away from this highest level of kingdom and the full, complete, eternal family that they would otherwise be promised. And so it, there leaves a, a distance that remains there that is to be overcome. And because we have this history of past leaders giving very strong messages that have really never been disavowed, even though they've been softened, it allows the more orthodox, the more um, fundamentalist mindset to go back to those other ways. And we have stories of people who are no longer welcome in the family home because they left the church or who are written out of the will of their family because they left the church. Um, there's a number of different severities of which this happens. And that's in the Mormon context. And Lloyd, I want to start with you because I know Jehovah's Witnesses have a very strong concept of this. Yeah, in fact, so strong that I guess that's the only, If I, I'm, I don't wish to kind of pull holes in, in this model, but that's the only kind of problem I have with the, the stairs model is that it almost kind of, I know that's not the intention, but it seems kind of grants a degree of equivalency to each of these Mm -hmm. kind of issues um for me um the issue of shunning is is dominates all of the other issues and i think that's the same for a lot of people who um who are trapped in the organization we, we now have terminology uh pimi p-i-m-i physically in sorry physically in mentally out so there's p-i-m-i which is physically in mentally in and p-i-m-o which is physically in mentally out and when you're physically in, mentally out, basically the only thing that's keeping you in is, is the threat of shunning. And it's a very clear threat. It's not just kind of codified in the magazines and in the literature. It's also overtly and, and very kind of, it's shown almost with pride in the videos that are, are produced by a Watchtower that encourage family members to shun people. So that's kind of the only issue I have with the whole model because I, I think that when you've decided that it's not for you, there's only really one thing that's going to keep you in, and that's the threat of losing your family. I want to speak to the the reservation that you have in terms of this model, and that is because you're talking about something beyond the control of the abused. That is a real consequence that they will absolutely face if they mm. leave. Mm. And so it's not just a... A, a mental block that you have to overcome to free yourself. But I think that's true even in, in the case of the stairway because it is totally not unheard of for abusers to carry out their threats. And for women who, after taking the step to liberate themselves from an abusive relationship, end up dying at the hands of violence of their abuser. And, and so, you know, I think we talk about these as metaphor, but in many cases, as you're pointing out, they are actually real threats. Um, but what would you say it is that causes someone to cross the threshold and say, you know what, 
Jehovah's, this, what I'm experiencing in Jehovah's Witness is so personally damaging to me that even though I'm going to lose my family, I still have to make this choice to separate myself, understanding what the consequences are. Like what, in your experience, what is it that causes someone to cross that threshold? Because everybody, I mean, that is a threshold that people do cross. Yeah, well, I, I get emails just as one example. I frequently get YouTube comments or emails from teenagers who've woken up to the fact that the religion that their parents are in the process of raising them in isn't true. And they're now in this situation <laughs> where they know that if they uh, speak out and say, actually, mum and dad, thanks all the same, but it's just not quite for me, they know that they're um, either immediately or eventually going to get thrown out of the family home and lose all contact with their parents. And quite apart from the emotional uh, impact of that, there's also, let's be honest, the financial impact, because yeah. you do rely to a large extent on your parents when you're a teenager. Um, so that is, that I would say is the main thing that keeps someone in that situation from, uh, from immediately exiting, let's say, is, is the threat of shunning. Now, where it gets complicated is that you could get disfellowshipped, for example, for sinning. You could, let's say, a, a teenager um, fornicates with someone at school and they're baptized and they get disfellowshipped and they're old enough to get thrown out of the family home. They, they won't get thrown out if they're, let's say, 14 or 15, but let's, let's say they're 18, 19 years old. They may well get thrown out of the family home. What you will frequently find happen is that these individuals who are disfellowshipped roam around still believing that the organization is true because of a lot of the other things on this staircase. You understand? Yeah. So even though, and that's another abbreviation that we have, physically out, mentally in, P-O-M-I. Oh. <laughs> they're, wander, they're wandering around in kind of this nether region where they can't move on and understand what's happened to them and process what's happened to them even though they're physically out they're still trapped by a lot of those other issues that uh, i see on those that stairwell oh, wow. uh, chris what about the scientology flavor of this messaging about losing uh, your family or shunning well that's that's of course the most toxic policy that the church of scientology has uh, you know, in terms of a universal policy that, you know, it's going to apply to everybody if they leave, um, publicly at least, you know, you're going to get shunned, you're going to get disconnected from if you make a big deal about leaving Scientology. Our terminology, I've, I, Lloyd, I was fascinated by that terminology. Is that, did that develop within the X community or is that? Yeah, a literally within like, say the last year, I can remember yeah. first encountering and saying, what the hell does that mean? And very brief, very quickly came up to speed with it and you still get people saying what does this what do these letters mean but it's just become shorthand now between xjw's interesting because the term we use uh within scientology uh is the under the radar uh which is the person who i guess you'd say is physically in but mentally out like mm -hmm. they're you know they've just kind of they're they're still having to be just to say the words or say they're a Scientologist or say yeah. they're part of it. But we also use faders for that kind of person as well. Fader is another one. Fader. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's, so we have that. We have, anyway, it's, I, lo I love that terminology. I like that. That has, yeah. 
that has there's a lot of connotations there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the the toxic policy of disconnection is one of the number one things that is used, um, you know, by us to 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 talk about the, the the trouble with Scientology because their form of disconnection is absolute. It is not a there's no scale. It's not a spectrum. You it mm-hmm. is a it is a black and white thing. If you uh, go against the church in any way, uh, you will be declared uh, suppressive. Now they're not even formally declaring people suppressive anymore because it's got such a bad rap you know at first they you know it used to be that you know it was they were almost proud of it somebody would 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 speak out or go against the church there would be this goldenrod piece of paper with the person's name on it and it said suppressive person declare and it listed out all of their literal crimes in scientology and this was posted on notice boards. People could see this all over in, in churches around the world. Oh, Joe Smith got declared this week, and here's all the reasons why he got declared. So nobody talked to Joe Smith anymore. He's, you know, and it says right on the declare order, his only terminal is the international justice chief. Terminal meaning somebody he can talk to. That's the only wow. person he can talk to in the entire world of Scientology is this guy or girl person who is the international justice chief because <laughs> wow. it's now a justice matter that you are you have gone so off the rails right and uh and that's how it used to be done but then we got on the internet and scientology realized how fucking insane this sounds and so they stopped first they stopped issuing the declare orders they would they would write them but they just kept them in a file cabinet and then they stopped writing them and now it's all just sort of verbal. It's kind of like the Facebook police come out and they tell everybody, hey, he's not in good standing with the church anymore. So you can't be talking to him anymore. And that's kind of how it's done. But I want to join Scientology just so that I can work my way up and become the international (laughs) justice chief. I want to get into a conversation at the bar where someone says, so what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm chief. Oh, what, what are you a chief of? international justice <laughs> it's just brilliant exactly oh god yeah the 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 airs these guys put on man the self-importance is quite intense amazing uh, yeah. at, at, at the level of the c organization you are yeah you're going to be hard pressed to find people who are more full of themselves than c yeah. members and 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 that was me too when i was in i was i was a total asshole um anyway yeah, so it's, so it is a formal policy in the church. It's it's written down. It's L. Ron Hubbard's instructions, and and it's it's is you know, and they don't care what the relationship is. They don't care family, friends, business partners. It doesn't matter. If the church says disconnect, you disconnect, and that's just how it is. Now it seems like the intensity of that doctrine in Scientology. Um, it's depicted really well in Leah Ramini's. Um, series where it's not just that you're declared suppressive and then you must be shunned, but then if anybody in your family does contact you and it is known, then they, by doing that act themselves, fall into that category. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, you will be, uh, and that's, that's, again, why it's so absolute. There's, there's no, it's a black and white thing. You're either with us or you're against us. It is, it is one of the, one of the best examples of that uh, characteristic of destructive cults, the, the us yeah. versus them mentality uh, in, in the real world, you know, demonstrated there. And, uh, 
and they are they are ruthless about it. They they don't mess around with that. What about you, Lloyd? Is that same sort of secondary doctrine true in Jehovah's Witnesses, where if you're being shunned and you're if, or if you leave and your mother or father or grandfather decides to maintain contact with you, are they also um, disfellowshipped being them? It's not quite as straightforward as that. So uh, you can be disfellowshipped for um, socializing or speaking to someone who is themselves disfellowshipped only so long as you are not um, one of their relatives. If you're, an, if you're a non-relative, then you can be disfellowshipped for speaking mm. to a disfellowshipped person. But if you are a family member, <clears throat> there isn't actually um, judicial action that can be taken against you. In other words, it's not something that's kind of punishable by the rules of the religion. It's just that um, in almost any magazine article or video that Watchtower puts out on the subject, they're constantly saying, it's just not something you're supposed to do. And so there's all, all of the emotional guilt tripping is there and parents are told that um, they need to treat someone who's disfellowshipped basically as though they've died. And not e uh, sorry, not even, even worse than that, they're not supposed to mourn them. They use a verse, I think, talking about Aaron losing his sons or something like that, where it said that they weren't even to be mourned. And they say that's how you should be with your relatives, but it's not kind of codified that relatives can get disfellowshipped for speaking to disfellowshipped relatives. Yeah. Is, I have a question. Has it always been that way with the Jehovah's Witnesses from the get-go? No. No. Okay. no, it came in um, in 1952, the disfellowshipping arrangement. Uh, before that, the only way you could be excommunicated as a witness was by the president. And the, the president did um, excommunicate. Uh, one example is Olin Moyle, who was a senior Watchtower official who wrote an open letter uh, explaining all his grievances with Rutherford, and he was officially excommunicated from the religion. Um, if there were grievances in the congregations, they were dealt with sort of between the congregation members, and there was no kind of formal disfellowshipping policy until 1952. And even then, it was possible to disassociate so you could decide this is no longer for me i just don't believe it anymore but i mean well to all of my believing friends and relatives and we're going to talk and everything's going to be fine and you could do that from nine between 1952 and 1981 in 1981 they had a huge uh, apostasy purge um including one of the governing body members at, at the brooklyn headquarters ray franz who later went on to write Crisis of Conscience. And with all of the paranoia that got whipped up surrounding this apostasy purge, they basically made the rules more severe and said, we're making this fellowshipping and disassociation virtually the same in terms of the, the punishment, so that if you disassociate, it's as though you've also sinned. It's as though you've been disfellowshipped, and in both cases, you should be shunned. So... Was that was that 1981 action taken in response to some internal crisis or something? There's very, very compelling evidence that it was a direct, it was a direct attempt at snaring Ray Franz, because when Ray Franz left, he actually um, resigned from the governing body, or he was put under pressure to resign. And he went out to a congregation, um, I forget where it was, it was somewhere in northeastern America, 
and I think, or was it down in Alabama? I can't remember. He went out to a, a congregation and befriended someone who was who ended up getting disassociated. And this person who he befriended was his boss and also his landlord because he was living on his land and doing work for him. And because this person was disassociated, the theory is that Watchtower wanted rid of Ray Franz, so they changed the rules so that he could be incriminated for having contact with his friend who was disassociated. Wow. And although it can, it can never be proven that that's what happened, um, I think Ray Franz writes in his book that he was told by someone that in the Watchtower article where they changed the rules, someone told him they did everything except mention your names. You know, it was almost like they'd crafted this scenario just to trap him. So That is interesting because I want to be clear about this. So this is a case where mm. things actually got worse in the Jehovah's Witnesses over time, over as we come closer to, to modern times. Definitely. That is interesting. That actually puts a little bit of a hole in my theory about the about the cults and mainstreaming. So yeah, I'm, and I'm it continues to get worse. It continues yeah. to get worse because um, rather than kind of, I mean, what you could do is you could have this rule about disassociation and shunning and the way apostates are, be, are to be treated, and you could just not talk about it. You could just kind of have it there. And it's, it's for elders to kind of talk about. But what Watchtower is doing is it's basically celebrating it. It's making videos about it. It's releasing, there was a Watchtower article, July 15th, 2011, where they referred to apostates as mentally diseased. And so uh, Watchtower is almost kind of, you know, sticking the boot in almost. It's quite astonishing. The more pressure there is for them to kind of go mainstream and start easing things up a little bit, the more they react like kind of a caged tiger and, and, uh, and really, really double down. Interesting. Yeah, I think, Chris, your theory probably is based on the idea that the people in charge of the organizations have an understanding of why they're so odious to the rest of the world and are adapting to overcome that when I think in some cases that's, that's not the reality and the leaders really, um, believe that by clamping down more and becoming more fundamentalist that they're going to somehow purify or purge or or make it to you know the last cleansing or or armageddon and i think they really like believe that they're spokespersons for god yeah. and and they view any external criticism including criticism from apostates like me they view it as like a test as to whether they can kind of hold on to these quote-unquote Bible commands that they've inherited. And so for them, it's a test of loyalty. Now, I want to point out on this issue of shunning, it's another case where it's leveraging kind of an evolutionary impulse that we have, and that's humans are social creatures. And our first social group, as we understand it, is our family. And so it's another instance where these groups are using your family and the threat of depriving you of them as part of their weaponry. And um, with that said, let's go to the, the next one, which I think is, we won't have much to say because it's very similar to that. And that's losing your friends. Mm. Um, yeah, when I first saw that, I thought those two things were going to go hand in hand yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And I think that, uh, Lloyd, you spoke a little bit to how things are a little bit different in Jehovah's Witness if you're not direct family members. Mm. Um, I experienced this myself where people who I perceived as friends in the church and would interact with very congenially. Once you leave the church, 
they, you just drop off their radar. Like it's just, there's no reason for them to maintain that contact anymore. Well, it can happen in Jehovah's Witnesses even without you leaving the church because they have this principle based on first Corinthians where they call you bad association. So all you need to do to be bad association is just start missing a few meetings. And Mm -hmm. even though you're still technically a witness and you haven't done anything wrong, people will start distancing them themselves from you. Yeah. All right. So next we have God's disapproval. And this is where, you know, this Scientology is a little bit different probably than what I want to hear that. But, you know, in Mormonism, certainly for you to go apostate is, you know, we have lectures from the earliest church leaders that you are expressly rejecting God and his uh, commandments. I want to read one quote that, um, is from Brigham Young. It's like, what have the Latter-day Saints got to apostatize from? Everything that there is good, pure, holy, godlike, exalting, ennobling, extending the ideas, the capacities of the intelligent beings that our Heavenly Father has brought forth upon this earth, what will they receive in exchange? I can comprehend it in a very few words. These would be the words that I should use, death, hell, the grave. That is what they will get in exchange. We may go into the particulars of that which they experience. They experience darkness, ignorance, doubt, pain, sorrow, grief, mourning, unhappiness. No person to condole within the hour of trouble. No arm to lean upon in the day of calamity. No eye to pity when they are forlorn and cast down. And I comprehend it by saying death, hell, and the grave. That is what they will get in exchange from their apostasy from the gospel of the Son of God. He was and a so, cheerful chap, Brigham Young, it, wasn't he? He was, you know, when he wanted Damn. people to listen. <laughs> That is but, like some heavy shit to unload on somebody, man. That's sinners in the hands of an angry I, God type. I think that someone should name a university after him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's this idea that when you leave the church, it's not just that you're leaving an organization. You are leaving the grace of God. You are leaving the goodwill of God. And, you know, this is messaging that affects both the person that leaves as well as the people who are left behind in the organization. And when, when these groups equate their word with the word of God, it m- makes it harder psychologically for you to toss them over. Mm. You know, in a lot of Protestant religions, they don't claim to speak for God. They claim that they're doing their best, you know, to pastor people in God's way, but they are imperfect too. And, and so you could reject those groups and not feel, if you're a religious person who has a belief in God, not feel like you're rejecting God. But so what you need to do to create this step is you need to blur the lines between what you want from people and what God wants. Oh, br- and, exactly. That's and we, we get that all the time in Watchtower Propaganda. They're constantly referring to the organization and to God interchangeably. Yes. So they'll right. say... Oh, Jehovah has assigned this couple to <laughs> serve yeah. on this island in the Pacific, and oh, it, it's a it's um, an assignment from Jehovah. They'll say they won't say it's an assignment from what. Wait, Tower. you guys get that at the local level too, not just the governing body. Oh yeah, yeah. Even just okay. the branch. If if you get, let's say, your elders ask you to do something, it's interpreted as Jehovah's direction. Oh, wow. I know. So it's like, not just the it's not just the Pope who's speaking for God. It's any elder. Anyone yeah. in authority in the organization, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's all part of the same structure. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly how it is in Mormonism. My very last calling was the facilities organizer, which 
meant primarily that I had to organize the members to come and clean the toilets. And the guy that called me to it, the bishop, is like, I want you to understand that this calling comes from God. This is you where see, I see you more as an international justice chief. I don't know. I, I do too. <laughs> No, but <laughs> I was the international to toilet clean chief. I can't, exactly. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here imagining somebody handing you a toilet bowl cleaner and saying, "This is from God." You know? <laughs> Metaphorically, like, that's God a really thing. doesn't like you. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, 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 you have God, to understand, though. Apparently, God really doesn't like dirty toilets. You know? yeah, so, yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's, well, no, it's that God doesn't like actually paying real janitorial services. Sure. Even right. though you're a multi-billion-dollar corporation, right? But um, this whole idea of God's disapproval, though, I think drives a lot of people to stay because they feel like rejecting the organization is the same thing as rejecting God, and because they have been raised in a very pious, God-fearing mindset, um, they they can't see doing one without the other. And how does that work in Scientology, though, Chris? Because I, as I understand it, there's no judeo-christian god concept in scientology is there some equivalent metaphorically yes there is um and that would be source um l ron hubbard is presented as source and that's like with a capital s so and that when was you say source do you mean like barbecue sauce no 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 uh, <laughs> source source <laughs> uh, i have no i there's no accent here come on i'm an american i don't have an accent um, okay, so L. Ron Hubbard is the source of all of Dianetics and Scientology, right? Uh, at least according to L. Ron Hubbard, he is. We already know that's total crap, but because uh, he plagiarized all kinds of stuff. But uh, to be, but it's a thing in Scientology to be what's called off source. Okay, if you're off source, you're not following L. Ron Hubbard's dictates and directions, and you are, to that degree, it's sort of used as a, as a synonym for being impure or corrupted or wrong. You know, you're doing something really off the rails means you're, you know, you're off source. Hmm. And, um, and this isn't something that's, uh, how do I how do I put this? I mean, it's 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 there. It's always there, but it's not necessarily like the 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 worst thing you could do. But it's up there, you know, being off source, and you can be accused of this for any number of reasons. Um, but it's something you don't want to be. You want to align your life with L. Ron Hubbard's dictates and directions, and um, L. Ron Hubbard is not worshipped in Scientology as a god, but he is revered as a genius philosopher and researcher, and he is somebody who commands respect and who you willingly give you know, quite a bit to uh, because of his genius and, the, and all the discoveries that he made. So he's pretty close to a god though, isn't he? Because don't you guys keep an office free for him <laughs> in, every, in every idea look? That's the highlight. Whenever I kind of binge on uh, Scientology tour videos, which I just find hilarious for my own personal reasons. The highlight is when they get to Elrond Hubbard's office, which is obviously empty, but that is there for him if he ever comes back, isn't it? It is. And yeah. and actually, it's funny because in this week's q and I actually uh, answered a question about this exact thing. Um, because I never thought when I was in Scientology that Hubbard was coming back. It never, that was not a thing for me. I never thought, you know, he died, 
we were told he went off spiritually to do more research on, you know, his the upper, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> dude. <laughs> I, I tell you, yeah, I didn't even know he had bad teeth. I mean, all the photos are all photoshopped and everything. Sure. But we thought he was going off to do more research and stuff. So I had a very uh, kind of a practical view of it. It was kind of like, hey, we're on our own now. We got to make this thing go. It's sink or swim, right? And um, and to me, the offices uh, were always sort of a tradition. It was kind of a. It was kind of a. Uh, like a, like a monument to Hubbard. That's what those offices represented, as far as I was concerned. It never dawned on me ever that he was coming back to take possession of his office. You know, that was that was not a thing for me. I was kind of surprised to find out when I got out that that the other Scientologists did not share that view. That some people yeah. really thought he was he was coming back. You know, but when we talk about God, though, we talk about a being that embodies all goodness, all truth, who their word defines morality. So what they say is right becomes right because they said it. And, and, and so that pattern of things seems to fit with L. Ron Hubbard. I, I, think L. Ron Hub, I think L. Ron Hubbard is more of a god to Scientologists than most Scientologists would admit. I think you're probably right. Um, I think, you know, I can only speak from my own experience as far as the subjective reality of a Scientologist. Yeah. Um, so I speak from that point of view, but I don't argue with you at all. I think you're absolutely yeah. right. I think that the description you just gave, though, Jonathan, of what a god would be, would be also a very apt description for any cult leader. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, you know, yes, there's a God, you know, he has a messianic or prophet status. Um, but but nobody in Scientology is going to tell you that we should be worshiping L. Ron Hubbard. And that's where I draw the line on whether he's a God or not. But that also brings up the idea of what, what, what constitutes worship. So in Mormonism, songs, prayer, um, obedience constitute worship. Um, it's. I think the one thing that L. Ron Hubbard doesn't have is the omnipotence feature that we usually associate right. with God. Um, so I can see how that's different. But when it all comes down to it, what these are are beings that then allow leaders to claim the status as representing that being in order to have authority and superiority over everybody else. And I think that is very common. Their approval. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One last thing I'll say on that, then we can move on, is that Scientology's goal is to make you God. So the no, whole no, no, Mormonism has that. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I I got that. I know. <laughs> I'm just saying in Scientology, there's no God figure. There just isn't one. There's no creator, mm -hmm. ultimate spiritual, you know, big, big Thetan. That, you know, those are just those are just subjects of jokes in Scientology. The goal of Scientology is to turn you into what anyone would conceive of as God. Including omnipotence? Yes. I mean, we're talking about uh, an existence beyond the physical universe. Has anyone Ultimately. achieved that state yet? No, well, of course not. Okay, but not L. even L. Ron Hubbard? Hubbard? But L. Ron Hubbard was thought to have. 
right? Okay. If anybody did, L. Ron Hubbard did. Uh, we all were following in his footsteps. He's the one who left this trail of research that we could follow and all of these techniques and methods in order to accomplish that. Yeah, that's a, a remarkable parallel with Mormonism in that Mormonism believes that there's this uh, spiritual organism that has an embryological state and goes through phases to become God. And our earthly life is part of that state. You know, you could say that you could liken it to like a butterfly or something or a frog going through different stages of life. And so, you know, as God is man once was, and as, uh, as man is God once was, and as, as, um, God is man will become, I think is the couplet, something like that. Right. And that, and that would be, that would be very parallel with the concept of Scientology, except that there is no God figure. There's just L. Ron Hubbard who said himself, I'm not a God, I'm just a man. And I just figured a bunch of stuff out and I'm leaving this trail of research for you guys to, to follow. And that's kind of how Scientologists are with that. All right, well, let's go on to the next step then. So next is, this is an interesting one, trapped in Satan's power. So in Mormonism, there is a very real Satan. He is the adversary. He is, um, you know, within the pantheon of, of spiritual figures in the premortal existence. He's one of the children of God the Father, just as Jesus is one of the children of God the Father. It's just that he chose to defy God. He was the first apostate and, um, and set himself up in opposition to Heavenly Father, to God the Father and his purposes, and thereby Jesus Christ. And so the messaging that we're given both in our scripture and in um, talks from leaders is that Satan is out to destroy God's plan. And that means he has to destroy the most important parts of God's plan, which include the family, which include the uh, belief and obedience and faith of each of the members, because by preying upon and destroying those things, he will thwart God. And so we're told when we start to question leaders, that is the first step in going into Satan's power. And if we eventually reject the church and reject the gospel, then what we have become is we have become fully embraced in Satan's power. And um, then there's all this messaging about how your life will be destroyed because, you know, Satan will not take care of his own. But the idea that there is a real physical entity, a real, not physical, but a real entity who is working to destroy people's souls and is an enemy of your soul plays into the messaging that you're given. So not only are you rejecting God when you leave, but you're also embracing Satan or the adversary. Right. What do you have on that, uh, Lloyd? I would just change power to influence, trapped in Satan's influence. And I would just point people to my last, my very latest uh, JW Broadcasting rebuttal which is talking all about that, basically, and in which a governing body helper named Ken Flodin, who is just an awful, awful teacher. It's, it's worth watching him talk just to see how bad he is at doing his job. Um, he, uses this, he uses this really convoluted analogy, complete with footage of glassblowers, uh, and he compares people glassblowing and creating wine glasses to the way Satan... Um, manipulates people into becoming quote-unquote vessels of wrath made fit for dis destruction. The whole analogy is based on a verse in Romans 9, which when you actually look at the verse in context, says that it's God who makes vessels of wrath fit for destruction, not Satan. 
but he glosses over that and launches into his analogy anyway. It's quite interesting, but that's that would be the JW equivalent, just change the word power to influence. So is Satan an actual being in Jehovah's Witnesses, like out there somewhere? Oh, yeah. And yeah. He's, he stopped being portrayed with horns and a pitchfork quite some time ago. Um, there's pictures of him because he's described in a verse somewhere as being handsome, I think. Um so he's he's portrayed as kind of he was, this kind of yeah he was charming. supposed to be the most he was supposed to be the most beautiful of the angels yeah he? exactly yeah so he's not portrayed in the classical way that you would imagine but he yeah he's considered a very real entity by an anthropomorphic like humanoid or or ephemeral he's trapped in Earth's biosphere having been hurled down there in 1914 by Jesus when Jesus established his kingdom in the heavens and that event kickstarted the last days. And the First World War is seen as evidence that when Satan and his demons were confined to the Earth's biosphere, they immediately started getting up to mischief. How much of a role does the fear of being influenced or under the influence of Satan play as somebody leaves? uh, I would say an an infinitely secondary role to the fear of shunning, which is what Mm -hmm. I said earlier, that, that they don't have equivalents in my view but it's definitely one of the things that you're told is that if you ever leave the organization you'll be basically a pawn of satan Uh, so yeah one of the things that i distinctly remember is laying in bed one night after i had been reading and i learned a lot of stuff in history and we're told that satan is the great deceiver and that he can use a bunch of truth insert one lie and completely distort things and i remember thinking to myself what if i've been tricked by satan and that I've just, you know, if there's some piece of information that's been left out that I just can't, that I don't know that would explain everything and it's all true. And it was something that I really struggled with until I realized, well, wait a second, if it's all true, then all of, you know, Joseph Smith's polygamy, the racism, all, all the terrible things were from God. And it was just, it was something I had to actively work against in order Which to I think, unplug And I think you were, able to, you were able to work against it because you'd done the research. If you don't yeah. bother to do the research, there's nothing from which you can draw to remind yourself of why you've made that decision when doubts surface. And it's the same with JWs. You're going to have doubts from time to time. Oh, no, have I fallen for it? Have I become just this tool of Satan? Um, and again, it's by reminding yourself of, the way that you were lied to and the way that you were exploited that you're able to break free. Yeah. And that plays into what you were mentioning before, who people who are physically out, but mentally in, Mm. Uh, I think Steve Hassan mentions this in some of his books and, and you see it in groups where they've been cast out because they were not, you know, they violated some behavioral thing, but they don't know the absent foundation of authority or, or legitimacy of the group. And so they live their lives depressed and feeling like a cast out and if only they could one day, you know, be in good graces of the group again. And that's why I think the work that you do, the work that Chris does, and that I tried to do is so important is because it helps people who may be in that position start to unwind and unravel that. Uh, because you do feel like you're in Satan's power if you have believed and internalized the messaging without understanding how that messaging is based purely on psychological manipulation. Now, Chris... You know, the only downside well, is that I don't get a good job title, which is... 
kind no. of what I really like. So, well, we're going to have to come up with something that's similar to international justice. <laughs> international, international apostate chief. Yes. That'll do. That'll do. I dub the, the international apostate chief. There you go. Now, what about Chris? Now, Chris, there's, is there a embodiment of evil in Scientology for yes. believers? I know yeah, that there, there is. I got to I got to hear this thing again though. What was that phrase you said that that the the uh Satan is the great deceiver? No, the the that you will become a vessel of what? Oh, a vessel of wrath made oh, fit oh. for destruction. I I I just I this is why I love the Bible. I just love these these turns of phrases that are yeah. these little gems of of English literature phrase you know phraseology in the Bible. I do, where do you where do you hear stuff like that? I know. That's impressive. Just, it is. Um, I, I um, as an English writer, I, I love this stuff. You know. <laughs> It's like Lord of the Rings, isn't it? It he is. Has become a vessel of wrath. Yes. Well, what's exactly. funny is that when modern <laughs> when modern leaders draw on that language, because we see it as old, it evolved over time, and it is like it has a richness to it from the liter literary perspective. It almost lends credibility, and and it gives like a, a a history and a depth to what leaders say. So when when our Mormon leaders use quotes from Isaiah from other things that have a literary richness to them it makes them seem like greater leaders yeah uh, absolutely it is it is uh it's powerful language it's and the I'll power just, of language yeah yeah it's and it and that and the bible has powerful language in it i don't know about you know the the old translations where it comes from but when they translated this stuff into english they so, i mean some of these things are quite impressive mm -hmm. i uh, ezekiel i mean pulp fiction has that whole you know uh, you know the samuel jackson uh quote which is not from the bible but if you look up uh, ezekiel you'll find you know phraseology a lot like what samuel mm -hmm. jackson was saying that quentin tarantino just sort of rewrote but I just wanted to comment on that real fast because I just I, I when I hear stuff like that I just I almost go oh my god that's just so awesome <laughs> <You know? laughs> worthy of God's just I mean it's just awesome yeah. anyway uh, okay answering the question here about Scientology it's 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 very different and yet the concept is almost exactly the same um, the in Scientology you don't have Satan you have the reactive mind a part of your own mind that is built to as a survival mechanism but has gone off the rails because of language and so now works basically against you and that's that's about all i'll say about it for now um you when you're doing bad evil horrible things in the real world you are acting out the content of the reactive mind and i and and uh and that is what you're trying to clear yourself of or get rid of in the process of doing Scientology. The state of clear is a state where you no longer have the reactive mind anymore. It's gone, it's erased, it's, 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 you're free of it. You then have these, these further OT levels where you have to deal with a whole nother set of, of nonsense. So altogether, the reactive mind and all this other nonsense you have to deal with is called your case. It's your case, you're carrying around your case, you deal with your case, you go into auditing, you handle your case. That's, the, that's how that word is used. And in Scientology, it is the, the expression of giving in to Satan or living, you know, according to Satan's principles, would be dramatizing your case or having your case or, or being your case, <laughs> rather than being you, the good, 
you know, little spiritual entity that is that is actually a, a, a pure little angel without the influence of this case. So, you know, if you if you give up on Scientology, you're just giving in to your case. You're just you're just giving over to that, and you're just becoming, you know, basically. Uh, willfully becoming a, a kind of a monster or a, or a person who is immoral and and will just do whatever your case tells you to do rather than being the good moral upright Scientologist who's who's clearing the planet and, and saving the world so that's kind of the analogy in Scientology I think to that and if you leave of course then you can't handle your case you can't deal with the reactive mind at all because you're not going to be getting any more auditing and that's the only thing in the entire universe that will handle your case. So basically, you'll be under your own influence or the influence of your kind of primal self. Yes, yeah. yes. The accumulated uh, billions of years of accumulated stress and trauma and bad, horrible things that have happened to you that you now revisit on other people because you have no choice you become kind of an a the way hubbard puts it is you're you you're sort of an automaton to your case it tells you what to do it dictates actions to you and you are powerless to you know not not do anything except what it tells you to do so uh only if you remain in the light you know so to speak if you remain a good scientologist and you keep going and advancing up the bridge to total freedom that's the only route you have to get rid of that case there's nothing else in the universe you could do that would no amount of prayer no amount of good thoughts no amount of good deeds are going to handle that case only auditing will deal with that so that's why scientology is the only route to pure freedom from a psychological manipulation perspective that is brilliant because it basically says that any thought process or any um, you know, awakening or awareness that you have that would lead you to reject what L. Ron Hubbard set up is the, you know, the, the definition of evil. That's and right. so, and it's That's in right. with, within you. So basically anyone that escapes and liberates themselves from Scientology is having to accept the evil part of their brain. And, and so they would have to understand and redefine their inherent morality to, to know that by acting on those judgments, those impulses that are from within themselves that would liberate them from that does not define them as an evil person or a bad person. Yeah. That's very yeah, that's powerful. Right. I can understand how that would keep people trapped. Oh, big time. Yeah. And, um, and uh, the other point I wanted to make about that is um, that it's, that it's a, that you have the power to overcome that. You know, if you, if you, if you, through force of will, you can temporarily stave it off. If you're and, willing to part with thousands and thousands of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you, it, it's sort of, it, yeah, exactly. The idea is you can stave it off and you better pay your money and get yeah. in session and get that auditing. Because, right. yeah. But that's that created dependence where the solution to that state is a dependence upon the group. Exactly. And there's no other exactly. way. This is your one thin, tiny hope in all of the endless trillania of this universe for a road out. As I'm, as that's, I'm, that's how Hubbard puts it. Yeah, as, I'm, as I listened to you describing that, it reminded me of a concept in Mormonism that stands a little bit apart from God good, Satan bad. And that is that there's this idea that the natural man is an enemy to God. 
So even though Mormons believe that you're born innocently, your body and the temptations of the flesh that come along with it predispose you to carnal desires that then Satan leverages in order to get you to disobey God. But it's the, the natural part of your body, which seems a little bit parallel to what you're talking about, that, you know, that that part of somebody's mind that puts them in adversity with God's commands. And so that all that, I think, is in the milieu of, of being trapped in Satan's power. Um, yes. Also in Scientology, just because it, since you just brought that up, I'll mm -hmm. mention that the body itself also exactly like you just said, the body has its own urges, too right? Without the spiritual entity, the body would still be alive, but it would run, but in the same way that say an ape is alive or a dog is alive, it would not be, be driven by only animalistic impulses. Yeah, it would not be a thinking analytical creature. It would be, Hubbard described it more as a, you know, and he didn't say the word zombie, but that kind of idea is what you get. And um, and so it's the Thetan, the, the spiritual entity that imbues morality and rationality and thinking and that kind of thing. But it's influenced by the basal impulses and, and instincts of the body, which exists as its own living entity. Yeah. So Jonathan's got some Jonathan's got some special underwear he can prescribe for those sorts of urges, I think. You know, the, the underwear protects you from fire and automobile accidents. Uh, you, you have to control your own urges. But, uh, so let's go on to the next one, because this one was uh, particularly interesting to me. So this one is, uh, your life will fall apart. That's and insane. I don't know if you guys got this kind of message. I remember in one of the last communications I had with my stake president, the local leader, uh, at the end of an email he sent to me, he said, you know, when your life falls apart, don't go blaming the church. And the idea here is that when you leave the church, when you leave the pathway, the covenant pathway of obedience to the church and its leaders, then you're going to miss out on all the blessings that you receive by obedience. And so you're, you're going to lose, you know, the harmony in your home. You're going to lose, lose peace of mind. You're going to not do as well in your job. Financially, things are going to fall apart for you. You're going to suffer calamities. And, you know, when that happens, just remember that it's because you rejected God and you rejected the church. And it's a fear-mongering tactic. I think it, it exploits the variety of things that happen in everybody's lives. You know, everybody is going to have good times and bad times. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the ancient gypsy's curse. If, if somebody just says, you know, when the bad thing happens, it's because you did this or because I cursed you, then you're going to live your life. Something bad is going to happen because something bad always happens. Uh, but because they've planted that idea, if you don't understand how those ideas have no power, you're going to attribute it to what was said before, and somehow that's going to work on you psychologically. Um, and and that, there's a mirror thing there, which is that there's this concept of prosperity gospel, where by being obedient, by paying tithing, by everything, you're going to be materially blessed. And so when you leave the church, that's going to go away. Now, how does that play out in Jehovah's Witnesses, Lloyd? Uh, it's not really... It, it doesn't necessarily come from the leadership. It's just kind of an inevitable byproduct of their teaching that you will constantly hear witnesses say things like, oh, if I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, I'd probably be dead by now. I'd probably have committed suicide by now. There's nothing outside the organization for me. I'd just be miserable and pathetic if I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. And 
the, the sad thing is that there's kind of a kernel of truth in there because when you do get cast out of the organization, especially if you do grapple with doubts, it can be pretty horrific and your life can be pretty shitty for a while until you establish, re-establish your sense of community and until you process what's happened to you. It can be very traumatic and and it's very clever in a way that cults kind of point to that disoriented status and say, hi, you wouldn't want to be like that, would you? You want the absolute certainty that we can give you. So um, obviously when you move past all of those doubts and all those fears and uncertainties, uncertainties and you kind of ground yourself in, in a good kind of social network, um, those things aren't an issue and you really do experience happiness and fulfillment. But there is kind of like a a no man's land that you need to stumble through first. And so in a way, it's kind of accurate in a disturbing way. I love the point you made about um, the accuracy of it, because I think it's unless you go through it, it's hard sometimes to understand how really devastating a crisis of faith yeah. that occurs when you discover these things are. And it can totally disrupt your identity, your life. Um, you can have depression, anxiety, all of these things that make you less able to cope. And it's, you know, when you have trouble as a result of the trauma that's involved in escaping these type of controlling groups, for them then to take that trauma, which was inflicted by those groups, and say, this is the result of you leaving the group, you know, it's true, but that doesn't mean that you're being punished for leaving the group. Sometimes mm -hmm. that means that you have to go. If you want to escape that prison and start to live a life directed by your own conscience, you have to go through those difficult times that are going to carry all of the baggage because of how overwhelming the group was in, in weaving its threads into your life. I made a video uh, yeah. recently where I explored some of the ways I've changed as a person since leaving. And one of the kind of realizations I came to is that I'm actually, in a strange, weird way, I'm more depressed nowadays than I was as a witness. And I don't know what all the reasons are. Um, probably it's got something to do with the fact that when you're a JW, you think that there's always kind of this kind of light that you're moving towards as this answer just around the corner to all of your problems. And then when you're when you're cast out, especially when you lose religion entirely, you realize that actually I'm responsible for solving my own problems. And that can be something that's quite difficult to bear. Uh, added to that, the issues with shunning and having your family situation completely skewed up, all of that does cause depression. So that's the irony, is that in some ways it does get worse. But the way I describe it is that while my sadness has intensified, my happiness has also intensified. So that while I do get more depressed, I also get infinitely more happy and more fulfilled and more satisfied than I did as a JW because now I'm living authentically. Now I'm living for myself and for my family and I'm not giving everything to Watchtower and outsourcing my thinking to eight dudes in New well, York. They have a solution for that that's coming up next. But before we get to that, uh, Chris, what about you? What about this concept that your life will fall apart uh, if you leave Scientology? Yeah, I agree with literally everything both of you have said on this point. I, um, including Lloyd, what you were just talking about in terms of real life uh, afterwards, because I, um, I can relate totally to that. In fact, it's only been 
fairly uh, recently, I think the last two years, that the, that the reality of PTSD and depression have come home to me um, and how those things were covered up in Scientology or denied. There's just denialism straight up, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, and I think those or are attributed to you not being righteous or worthy enough. Well, it, mm, or, yeah. or going to as many auditing sessions. I don't know. Well, in, it's in more Mormonism, like it was be that you didn't do enough prayer or scripture study or. Yeah. In Scientology, it's more like a non-recognition of the fact that depression or PTSD or anxiety even exist, that they're even mm -hmm. things. They're just fantasies. And if they're fantasies dreamed up by an evil practice called psychiatry, then they have no validity and therefore they're, they just aren't a thing. So if, if you're that much in denial about the existence of those things, then you would never look at your own symptomology or, or other people's and think to yourself, oh, that's what that is. I'm looking at anxiety right now. I'm looking at depression mm. right now. That's kind of how it manifested for me. And it took me years, even after coming out of Scientology, and even after I'd educated myself about these conditions and the fact that they are real and they do exist, to see them in myself. And to start backwards seeing them, you know, looking back at my memories of, of other Sea Org members and Scientologists and seeing times where I was trying to help somebody through a depressive episode or through an anxiety episode or through a panic attack. And I had no clue what I was looking at when I was in Scientology and that was happening. I was trying to apply Scientology principles to it. And Scientology is not psychotherapy and it is not a valid form of mental help. In, in most cases, you know, it has some limited workability, but, but not, you know, when, you, when you're faced off with somebody who's in a depressive episode, um, you can't, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the completely wrong thing to do, I have since learned, to just tell them, well, just be uptone, just, just change your mind, just, just come on, just, just, just do it, just smile, force yourself to smile, and you'll soon stop frowning, you know, this is a mantra in Scientology, right? force yourself to laugh and you'll soon find something to laugh about. You know, you're supposed to be in charge of your own emotional state in Scientology. So like the Disney guide to mental health, isn't it? Just, exactly. That's, I, I love that. I'm probably going to, I think I'm going to steal that. That, that is, that is really good because that's exactly what it's like. And so, um, so everything you guys just said about how, when you leave Scientology, you go through all this mental rigmarole and emotional roller coastering. I mean, yes, very much so. And I have, uh, I've really enjoyed our talk here so far because I, um, I recognized a, a while ago that all these cults do the same things. They just use different language or different methods or, or terminology. But this is just bringing it home to me again and again when we're going over these points, how, how all of these things exist in all of our groups. They just manifest themselves in different ways. But the mechanisms and the and the ideas are yeah. all the same, and this idea of you're going to, uh, you know, I mean, Miscavige himself would tell people who were leaving the international base when they were leaving the Sea Org, you're just going to end up at McDonald's flipping burgers, you know, your life is going to be shit without Scientology, and 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 just prepare for that because that's how it's going to be, you know, and he's trying to like lay this 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 heavy, you know. Uh, line on you it would be so um, much better in the hole <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah it's yeah because because everything here is so great you know? like, like, come on 
but this is the kind of stuff I was told when I was leaving the Sea Org. I yeah. was told flat out, you're going to, you know, your life is going to go to the shits. You, things going to be horrible. You're going to be lucky to get a job flipping burgers. And I was like, I just kind of knew it was coming. So I just kind of like took it all with a grain of salt and just said, okay, well, I have a plan. I know what I'm doing and I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what I proceeded to do. So I didn't, you know, quite have that, the, the, the fear of that didn't affect me as much as I know it's affected other former Scientologists. Um, but it's definitely there. Definitely. Yeah, it's one of those negative threats that, um, that exist on your way out. So let's yep. move on to the next one. And so that is going to be, uh, this one I, I particularly like, that is you're never going to know true happiness. Uh, and encoded into this is that, you know, if you do experience happiness, it's only a pale reflection of the real happiness you're gonna, you could have in the church, in God's favor, you know, being an obedient person. And we even see this like when people leave and they do find the happiness that comes with determining your own way, with seeing the world, with, uh, you know, unvarnished eyes that, that allow you to, to find beauty where you see it, to be true to your conscience. When you, when you experience that happiness and then you go back and you interact with your family, and I know we're kind of embarrassed that we can interact with our family. I'm sorry, you guys can't. But um, they may say you, they may see you and say, well, you don't really have true happiness. And I liken it to like eating like, you know, a really good gourmet chocolate bar and just really loving it. And then somebody walks up to you and they're like, what, what are you doing? You're like, I'm just loving this chocolate bar. And they're like, well, that's not, you're not really loving that chocolate bar. You know, that it, 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 your perception of happiness defined is defined by you, but that what they're doing is they're subverting that and making it where you can never, you're never going to be really truly happy. There's a counterfeit happiness that you're succumbing to. Um, do you have that concept in J-dubs? Oh yeah, uh, I, I just agree with you. Um, one thing that's ironic, bearing in mind what I was saying earlier about depression, um, is that witnesses have to deal with depression. And in fact, I can remember having a conversation once with a friend of mine while I was a witness. And uh, he was an elder at the time. And he said that in our congregation, because he was one of my elders, he disclosed that in our congregation, one in five were on antidepressants. And that doesn't seem like an alarming statistic to me now, now that I know what I know about cults and the way they screw with people's minds. But what's ironic is that witnesses are frequently told that they are God's happy people. And of course, only in Jehovah's organization could you find true happiness. And again, as I said earlier, nothing could be further from the truth. It's only when you start thinking for yourself and leading an authentic life that you truly understand what happiness is. Yeah. Utah has that same instance where the, the percentage of women in particular on antidepressants is phenomenally high in Utah, which is yeah. you know, a high Mormon percentage area of it. But the, the disparity between this messaging that they're always giving everybody that you're going to find true happiness in the church and then the reality of people's experiences where you have cycles of toxic perfectionism that lead to just constantly feeling inadequate and overwhelmed um, mm. does not make for good happiness. Uh, what about Scientology? Is there's concept? Is there a concept that if you leave the the org, you're never going to know true happiness or true power or whatever? Ab absolutely, yeah. It's same, same. Uh, again, everything you guys have said here. Uh, the only thing I can add to it, as far as um, the depressive stuff, uh, uh, it's worth commenting on that. 
zero percent of Scientologists are on antidepressants. Of course, yeah. And uh, and if you think about that for a second, that's pretty tragic. Disturbing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and disturbing because psychiatry is, of course, the ultimate enemy of mankind. Right. So um, so there so no one is allowed that form of relief or therapy or help. And uh, and I think if that didn't exist, I think you'd see easily the same or greater percentages of Scientologists on antidepressants. Um, but no one is, and uh, they're not allowed to be. The great irony is that the very mental health professional that could address those issues is specifically demonized. And so when you combine that with then the created dependence that it's Scientology's doctrine that you use to address those problems, when those that doctrine creates the problems, then it's a vicious cycle that that people can't escape because they don't have a real avenue based on you know, evidence-based medicine, peer review that of real efficacious therapies. Exactly. One, one last point on that, of course, is that when people leave Scientology, they still carry that anti-psychiatry stigma with them. It's, just, it's not like that goes away the next day. And so often, one of the biggest challenges in dealing with former Scientologists is getting them over that phobia induction of psychiatry and psychology so that you can even begin to get them some help. What about um, uh, different levels of mental health professionals? Like, is there the same aversion to therapists as there is to psychiatrists? Yes. Uh, all of it is bunk. Psychiatrists are the truly evil ones because they're the ones who can engage in psychosurgery and are the ones who uh, uh, prescribe drugs. Okay. So, so they're the most evil of the lot psychologists and life coaches and stuff like that are, are more considered very, very misguided people, full of false data, stuffed with false, you know. Borderline false. squirrels. <laughs> well, and squirrels is a different thing, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, they are, I mean, yes, actually. They, they mm. are regarded with the same degree of contempt. Mm. And, um, I mean, no Scientologist would ever give any credence to any utterance that a psychologist or, you know, psychiatrist would, would say. All right, so let's go to, uh, we're gonna skip over some of these because they're redundant. The idea that you will become depraved and immoral, I think we've covered in some of the other ones in terms of being in Satan's power and things like that. There's something that I, may be unique to Mormonism, and that is that you'll lose customers and clients. Now, Mormonism, is different from Jehovah's Witnesses, certainly, in that I think there's a strong focus on higher education, getting professional education, becoming a, um, you know, an economic being and, and participating, uh, you know, if you're wealthier, then you're seen as more righteous in many instances, because you can put on the appearance of, of righteousness, and it's proof that God has blessed your family. And so if you're a dentist, and you're in a Mormon community, all of your clients are Mormon. If you leave the church, then that same cultural milieu, which causes people to want to distance themselves from you socially as an apostate, will extend to your professional life and you'll lose clients. And this is a real reality. There, there are, for some reason, there's a lot of Mormon dentists, but you know, they, they end up staying in because their professional existence is tied to their good standing in the church. And so it's a part, this is not so much messaging from the church directly, it's just an, an understanding of how the church works and how it's inseparable from your social and professional environment outside of the church. And so it keeps people 
in. Um, now, how is that different for Jehovah's Witnesses? Um, it's not really a, a thing. It, it does happen sometimes, uh, probably not as much as it does with, with Mormons. You do sometimes get um, Jehovah's Witness companies who employ almost exclusively Jehovah's Witnesses. I've worked for one or two of them. So they do exist, but they're, they're not really that common. Mostly, uh, mostly, I would say that most witnesses don't work for Jehovah's Witness companies, and so this isn't this isn't really an issue. However, it does happen, and I can think of a an example close to home for me. Uh, one of the team on JW Survey, when they were working for JW Survey, but they were kind of undercover, and they had a JW Survey email, and they accidentally used the JW survey email address oh, no. to email someone who worked for them. And it wasn't long before that person ended up quitting the company and things got really difficult for, uh, for that individual who was on our team to, to get by. So it can happen. It's just not really very common. What about you, Chris? Um, no, same, uh, exact same. Uh, there are a lot of Scientology companies. There's a lot of Scientologists, entrepreneurs, a lot of people got into Scientology through business consultation uh, because the church has, a, has, a, has an arm, a secular part of the church that is uh, business consulting and using Hubbard's administrative techniques. And so a lot of chiropractors and dentists and doctors came in through that. Uh, and they target those people, of course, because they're the ones who have money. Yeah. So that's, you know, so it's an obvious choice for Scientologists to go after. And they're often individual practitioners who are struggling with the administrative functions of their, of their profession. So Scientology comes in as sort of this, you know, rescue. We're going to save you from all this administrative uh, disaster and nightmare that you don't, that they never taught you because you didn't go to business school. You went to chiropractic school or you mm -hmm. went to medical school. So we're going to give you this, this fully complete technology that's going to, you know, revolutionize your business and get you tons of customers. Is this one of those and, things where it has a different name? You don't realize it's connected to Scientology at all until much, much later? Uh, kind of, it can go that way. It's called Hubbard's administrative system. It, okay. it you know, it goes to Hubbard. Um, it's considered separate from Scientology, even though the group that actually uh, oversees this, the secular group, is called the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises. Ah. So, or it's called WISE. Nice grandiose name there. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, there's nothing uh, that, you know, L. Ron Hubbard never met a grandiose title he didn't like, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the WISE sector or the wise end of Scientology is all about getting people onto the bridge and into Scientology, but it does exist as its own thing. And so, um, so anyway, that's where you get a lot of professional Scientologists who so end, if up, they, end up getting Scientologists as clients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they step out of the church or they're no longer in good standing that day, they've lost half their customer base, three quarters, even their full, customer list because they were all Scientologists and they can't come see you anymore. Yeah. All right. Uh, getting close to the end here. Um, I just want to say something briefly on the step of lose eternal family. This is tied into the shunning that we spoke about at the beginning. Mormonism has a little bit of a different dynamic to it because not only are you threatened of being somehow distanced from your family in this life, 
But because the theology is tied into eternal families being the basic unit of existence in the life to come as you progressively achieve godhood status, then you're losing all of that eternal potential by becoming apostate. And so it's, it's t- in, salvation is tied in with eternal families in Mormonism in a way that defines your existence in the world to come. And so this looms very heavily in the minds of Mormons who decide to leave because so much of the church is tied into this notion of eternal families. And in fact, the letter that you get when you leave, they send you a letter and they're like, you know, because you've left, you have lost all of your ceilings from the temple that are that guarantee you your, your eternal family. All of those blessings are gone and your baptism is gone and your priesthood is gone. Everything is gone. And so you're left without any of that assurance. Now, I know I, I don't think either of you guys have kind of an eternal family concept for the hereafter unless you consider God's whole family as one. What do you, what do you have to say on that? No, that, that I'm blanking out on that one. Yeah, no, that's okay. We're going to have things that are isolated yeah. to a particular theology. Um, Chris, any connection there? No, I, I not only in a very distant sense. I, okay. I don't, I don't think that's a concept Scientology doesn't, doesn't particularly have. All right. So let's go to the last one that I have listed here, which is lost certainty. And I think this one, was particularly um, meaningful to me because one of the things that each of our groups does is it answers all of life's most difficult questions. You know, why we're here, what we have to do here to achieve the greatest future for us now. It contextualizes events that happen in the world. Oh, well, these things are happening because we're waiting for Armageddon or we're waiting for the second coming or, or we have a way to explain it through whatever L. Ron Hubbard described. Um, But all those things are answered. And so there's a part of your mind that you never have to flex, a muscle in your mind you never have to flex. And that is how you deal with uncertainty in your existence. And there's, just like you mentioned before, there's a fear of thunder. There's a fear of the unknown that we have. I think that fear of the unknown plays into this idea of uncertainty where there's a real existential dread and fear that you never really have to go through as a member of these fundamentalist groups. But when you get out, suddenly you have to start finding your place, your existence, your meaning, everything in face of not knowing the things that you previously took for granted and trying to find meaning. Um, What's your experience on that, Lloyd? Well, I actually, I think it's the first chapter in my second book, How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses. I titled it, Lord, Whom Shall We Go Away To? Um, Which kind of ties in a little bit, because one thing that Watchtower routinely trots out when it's trying to persuade people to stay or even kind of extinguish any possibility for people to leave is they quote the scripture in John chapter 6 where Jesus stumbles a whole load of people with his crazy beliefs about people partaking of his flesh and drinking of his blood. And a bunch of followers leave, and Peter says, um, oh, that's it, Jesus says, will you be leaving as well? Are you leaving me too? And Peter says, Lord, whom shall we go away to? You have sayings of everlasting life. And that scripture is is routinely used by Watchtower to say, listen, there is nowhere else to go, is there? As Peter says here, where else are you going to go? And the point I make in my book is that there's, there's two answers to that. The Christian answer is, 
well, people can leave Jehovah's Witnesses and still be Christians. And this verse was talking about whether people leave Jesus or not. So there's quite a few people who, there are many, in fact, who continue to hold on to a Christian faith. So that's, it's irrelevant, really. Um, and obviously, there's the atheist way of looking at it, which is, well, you, well, you would say that, wouldn't you, if you're a cult leader? <laughs> there's yeah. nowhere else to go. It's funny um, that you bring that up. Mormons use that exact verse, like just yeah. recently in the last conferences, you know, like, where else are you going to go? And so yeah. that's been part of the ex-Mormon mantra is, well, where else am I going to go? I'm going to go on a walk in the beautiful mountains instead of being confined in a church on Sunday and I'm going to have a second sat Saturday yeah. and I'm going to find, you know, things that are beautiful and meaningful for my own life. And thank you very much. Indeed. What and, about you, Chris? What's yeah, I think this whole thing just speaks to the, um, the, the characteristic we talk about with destructive cults of, um, uh, of certainty of being the only true path. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's what they have to convince their followers of, because if you can get the same goods with some other group and you go over to that group and they're not anywhere near as abusive or something like that, you'd be like, OK, well, hey, everybody, come on over here. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so they have to convince you that you leave this group and you got you, you're lost. You were you're, you know, you're going to lose everything. And uh, and that's definitely the case with Scientology. I am. Um, uh, was talking about that. That 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 actually hit me upside the head pretty hard after after I got out. I had to sort of I figured that out for myself. That business about um, certainty that that you know, that I was that that I had lost this this certainty that I had that 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 I had all the answers. Everything made sense. Everything was was uh, had an answer, and I had those answers in Scientology. Um, and the reason I I I twigged on that was I started realizing all the things that Scientology didn't actually answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there were all kinds of things. There were contradictions. There were big gaping holes in the, in the dogma, unanswered questions. And I had been so busy all the years that I was in Scientology convincing myself that it was my failing uh, of not seeing those answers or, or that I hadn't gotten high enough uh, to a high enough level in Scientology to get all the data and get all the answers. Um, and so, so I was always blaming myself. But after I got out, I saw much more clearly uh, the the lie of that. And um, and I, but I did miss the certainty. Yeah. You know, I actually did miss it. It was uh, it's something I still look back on fondly. With, oh, it was so nice to have those illusions. You know, <laughs> although <laughs> although there's still that thrill. I, I I kind of miss it, but at the same time, when you're out. There's a there's that thrill which I'm sure you guys experience when you learn something new that yes. you didn't know before, mm -hmm. or maybe you're listening to a debate on a subject that you've kind of thought about a bit, and someone makes a point that makes you think about that subject in a completely different way. That that again is is not a way that you would have even been allowed to think when you were in a cult, mm -hmm. and that kind of thrill I think you can't put a price on. I, I prefer that to the certainty. Of, yeah, of, from, of that, oh, I've, I've changed my mind on something. This is yeah. incredible. <laughs> but just the ability to, to own your mind and yeah, to, exactly. to have an opinion on something that you don't have to first filter through the decrees of a religious leader. Yeah. Like, I, I remember, you know, how do I know what's right or wrong in politics or government? Well, I need to go back and I, I need to ask 
uh, you know, I did look, look at the words of the prophets and what did they have like that with us? We would literally, if there was a subject where we were uncertain about, we would literally say, well, let's go on Watchtower Library and see what Watchtower yeah. Library's got to say. And we'd go on the computer program with it searches through all the publications and find an article on the subject. You don't have to do that anymore when you're out. You can just reach your own conclusions. It's brilliant. Yeah, it is. I, and I, and I, yeah. ownership over your mind is you can't trade that. Yeah. No, for sure. In in Scientology, it's uh, what would Ron do, or what does or what what did Ron say about <laughs> yeah. it, right? Yeah. And that's the first line. You always have to go and find that out. And it's only if oh well, he didn't really talk about this ever or cover it. Oh, okay, good. Then I get to have my own opinions about it. Okay, yeah. great. You know, <laughs> otherwise, obviously, you're going to agree with Ron, yeah. right? I mean, duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing, what, say, that what does, the publications say? Yeah, and what that does is it leaves the process of really thinking about an issue, discovering what your own moral foundation is, independent of illegitimate religious decrees, and then working through that issue in your own mind and your own conscience. Like that is a process that that I think you get better at and you you develop through your life. And it for people outside of these controlling groups it's part of maturing into an adult is being able to go through that mental exercise. And it, you know, if your brain is kind of like a muscle, it helps develop you as an individual, as, as a mature adult. And so when we say that people in these groups are infantilized, they, they remain in an infant-like state mentally, a lot of that is they never have to take any step beyond, well, what do my leaders have to say about this? And then once they learn that, that's all they have to think of. The thinking has been done. And so that's where you, I feel like I didn't really become an adult until I left the church around age 38 and was started to have confidence in my own inner voice. I completely, I could not agree with you more about that. I, in fact, I'm just, as you were talking, I was sitting here thinking about the fact that um, the, one of the many tragedies of second gen members uh, of, these, of these cultic groups is that they don't ever get beyond that that infant stage they never get beyond they never get to a place where they learn to uh process information and think for themselves in the same way that you know somebody who was never who 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 grew up before they had a cult you know then they had a cult experience but they got to learn to be an adult first and they got to learn to think about things you know first second gens don't don't have that experience all right, so we're getting close to the end. There's there's two things I want to do next, and then we'll close it out. So the first thing is I, I want to drive home the point that what we've looked at here is uh, essentially a bunch of, of threats and a bunch of negative things. And if the group was dominated by only this message, I think it would be much more of a, a toxic um, environment. It would be harder to find goodness and, and peace. And so what these groups have done is they've, been, they've found ways to take these exact same threats and formulate them as positive statements. And so you can recreate this type of staircase and have it only have nice, positive things. Family is forever. Obedience brings blessings. The Holy Spirit guides. Choose the right. Service and self-sacrifice. Blessed are the peacemakers. True happiness. And so... All of these messages sound good. They're good, positive statements, but they're tied to you conforming with the group, to you staying with the group, to being obedient, to being within the, you know, at the, at 
within the graces of the leaders. And so even though these sound positive, when you understand how the psychology works, these are all implicit threats because you're going to be deprived of all of these things when you leave. Now, would you guys say that you guys have that type of positive messaging with implicit threats in your particular group? Oh, definitely. I'm looking at that one, Obedience Brings Blessings. We had in 2012 or thereabouts a video uh, for children where they were singing a, a, re a relatively new song in the Witness kind of songbook, Listen, Obey and Be Blessed. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I won't regale you with it, but if you think about how culty that sounds, listen, yeah. obey, and you will be blessed. You have to obey. Um, it's so Orwellian, but you don't look at it that way when you're inside. You just think, well, we're, we're, we're being obedient and we'll get the blessings, you know. Um, That's right. You don't think for a moment what, what gives these people the right to demand my obedience. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Chris? Yeah, for sure. Same. I mean, there's all these thought-stopping cliches and mantras in Scientology that go along with all of what you're listing out here. Um, the joy of creating, uh, you know, operating on the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, you know, these, there's just these little, these little things that have significance in the world of Scientology. Nothing quite as Orwellian as, as listen, obey, and, and, <laughs> and be blessed. <laughs> Nothing quite that, you know. Oh, yeah. keeping Scientology working uh, is a big one, huge one. Uh, you know, you got a KSW, keeping Scientology working, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a huge deal in Scientology um, because it basically is, is saying that along the same lines of you follow the dictates, keep Scientology yeah. working, and that's the only and real and true path to happiness and spiritual enlightenment. So, um, so yes, again, same, same, different, different wording, same concepts, same intention. And also, of course, um, very much the um, implied threat of if yeah. you, you know, if you were to leave, if you weren't, if you weren't, you know, pure, if you weren't on source, you know, follow source, be mm -hmm. on source, those kind of things. Uh, then you know you're damning yourself to losing your eternity. So, all right. Uh, the last thing I want to do is, as I was researching this, looking for past statements, I noticed a pattern, and that is that there were certain adjectives and descriptors that were always used to the the faithful, and then a different set of descriptors that was always used to describe the apostate. And when you just isolate those descriptors and list them. You can see how powerful language is at creating an image of an apostate in contrast to the faithful, which is another psychological barrier to overcome as you are going through a crisis of faith that you realize may lump you in with the apostate. So these are the adjectives that we found for faithful people, friend, humility, benevolence, charity, obedience, kindness, harmonious superior intelligence, enlightenment, covenant keepers, noble. And th those are the signs of words that you would hear faithful. And then immediately it would be contrasted with the apostates, which are described as the enemy, pride, arrogance, enmity, contention, envy, deceived, naked, destitute, darkened, covenant breakers, lazy or weak. And you can see in just the adjectives that are used to describe these two people, there's no room at all given for the idea that somebody could choose to leave an organization and still be an individual of integrity, 
an individual who is good at the core, who is a moral being, and just this black and white way of framing those who choose to become, you know, disunbelievers or to leave the faith is a psychological barrier that you have to overcome in your journey out. Do you find that that same sort of, um, you know, painting the tone of the apostate happens in your group, Boyd? Definitely, uh, but probably more severely. <laughs> I've already <laughs> given the example of when apostates were accused of being mentally diseased in the 2011 Watchtower. They've had, they've been accused of being gangrenous. Um, and another one, I'm trying to think of the word. It's on the tip of my tongue. Another thing that gets thrown at apostates is that they're they're lacking harmony. Uh, they're trying to be divisive. They're, they're trying contentious. to contentious, we, we that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and you could really level that to any kind of legitimate kind of whistleblower in any organization. Yeah. Oh, they're being contentious. Um, you have every right to be contentious if there's corruption going on, if there's something that needs yeah. to stop, if there's some kind of abuse. But the, the assumption is always, as I'm sure it is in Mormonism, that they can, the, the leadership's never going to make any mistakes, obviously. So anyone who uh, disagrees with the leadership, no matter how justified they may think they are, they're automatically wrong. Yeah, we, we get the picture painted of if you become apostate, then your life becomes overwhelmed with just being critical of the church and yeah. its leaders. And you get labeled a contentious person who's only willing to find fault. They want you, if you do go away, to go away and be quiet, live your own life, only talk about your life. Don't look back. Don't be critical. But at the same time, in Mormon, if we as Mormons look at, for example, victims of Catholic priest child abuse who are being very vocal and very outspoken in their criticism of that church, we would look at that and we would say that is just and right. That is good. Those people are doing a good thing. But we would look at our own apostates who are doing the same thing on the issue of child abuse in the church and saying there is a problem. Oh, well, they're just being hypercritical because they're apostates and they just want to tear down faith. And, what about in Scientology, Chris? It seems like Scientology is willing to be more legally aggressive to their critics in a way that silences dissent perhaps more often than not, yourself being a clear exception. It, well, yeah, the, it, more so that it was that they were legally aggressive in the past, more so than they are now. Um, they've really been defanged in a number of ways by the public exposure that's been happening since 2008. And um, they kind of got their ass handed to them in a number of ways by Anonymous. And since then have oh. been uh, wary of legal battles. Also, David Miscavige is, is terrified of deposition and discovery. So, um, <laughs> so they're very compromised now in terms of their legalness. But, they, but, but make no mistake, if, if they have a target, they'll go after it and they'll expend no amount of money uh it, to do so so they they you know it's just that they, they yeah exactly and they and and that's a thing i mean that's church mm -hmm. policy so mm -hmm. so that's certainly a threat and you know and i say these things in full recognition of the fact that i'm always a bit hesitant about saying it because they could come after me tomorrow and they have the means and resources to make my life extremely difficult so i'm always you know i say these things but i don't want to um say them with a, you know, I'm not daring the church to come after me when I say these things. You know? I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, empirically speaking, they're not as, as aggressive legally as they used to be. Um, 
as far as the culture of Scientology goes, though, there's uh, all kinds of phrases uh, like you guys have uh, in Scientology to talk about apostates. They love the word apostate, by the way, because it has religious connotation. And Scientology will always use language that will uh, further its ends of, of, of religious cloaking. Because there's a, you know, there are arguments to be made that Scientology is not a valid religion, and I fall on, on that side of that argument. Um, but so apostate, uh, there's labels, you know, your your PTS, your out ethics, your off source, uh, and of course the ultimate one, your suppressive, you know. And if you're suppressive, that's funny because all those are insider terms that don't necessarily carry as strong a universal. Um, negative tag that right. other people would perceive it that's right that's and that's as probably another reason why they use the word apostate because it does have a derogatory negative connotation to it uh at least in many religious circles it does but within the world of scientology there isn't something harsher than a suppressive person so mm -hmm. if you're you know me or other people who speak out being labeled as suppressives we're we're literally being compared with uh uh, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, you know, Mao. I mean, we're, we're the worst that humanity could ever produce. Yeah, we're literally trying to destroy humanity. That's that it's, it's black and white. You're, you, you know, you're, you are, uh, anyway, literally trying to, to do away with mankind. Well, I want to thank both of you for uh, kind of enlightening me on how each of your respective groups handled these issues. I've really enjoyed this discussion, and uh, I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to host this week, Chris. And uh, so whatever you need to do to close it out, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys both. Uh, Lloyd, you were great. <laughs> thank you for, for that. Did you have anything, Lloyd, you wanted to say to wrap up on your end? No, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's always fascinating, isn't it, to compare and contrast, which is basically what we do in every, every time we come together. And I never cease to be amazed at how many commonalities there are, even though you have such wildly differing theologies and beliefs and policies, uh, you always end up in the same place <laughs> because yeah. uh, it just so happens that control, ways of controlling people are universal and can be used in any organization. Big time. I, and and I, I actually enjoyed this one uh, a lot. I, I, I got a lot out of our talk today. And this is the kind of thing that I think will be most helpful for former members of each of our groups or even other destructive cults if they, if they get around to watching this. Because it's, you, when you're able to critically look at another group that's not yours and see all these parallels, it, it can really, you know, can really explode your head, you know, uh, on some things. So, and if Scientology is watching and they're in need of a new international justice chief, I would like to uh, offer my application. You just have to sign a billion-year contract, Lloyd. Oh, okay. uh, you know, a little thing, you know, go through either, you know, Scientology Sea Org boot camp and, you know, start taking orders from David Miscavige. It's all, it'll all be good, you know. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, fun, good times. Um, okay, well, thank you very much, guys, for, for taking the time and, and participating in this. And folks out there, thanks for watching. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the uh, comment section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I look forward to your feedback on this. And consider supporting this channel through Patreon because that's what allows me to bring this to you. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.